to you by Chemistry. Hello listeners and welcome back to Brought to You by Chemistry. I'm your host, Dr. Alex Lathbridge, and in today's episode, we're talking about antimicrobial resistance, infectious diseases, and how diagnostics can play a crucial part in finding a solution for this issue. Really uplifting, really optimistic. This isn't going to terrify you at all. Joining me is Dr. Tina Joshi, Professor of Microbiology at Plymouth University, and Dr. Carmen Iwalia from the Indian Council for Medical Research. Uh, I'm going to ask the most difficult question is, could you please introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Dr. Tina Joshi, an Associate Professor in Molecular Microbiology at the University of Plymouth. I sit on the Microbiology Society Council and also on the uh, Science Committee of Antibiotic Research UK. I'm Dr. Kamini Walia. I am uh, working at the Division of Epidemiology and Communicable Diseases at Indian Council of Medical Research uh, in India. And I am a microbiologist by training and I've also trained in pu- uh, public health. And I have been coordinating the activities of antimicrobial resistance initiative at the ICMR for almost 10 years now. Brilliant. Wonderful. I've got two experts here with me, uh, which is nice because I'm not an expert in anything that we're going to chat about today. Um, So, of course, my first, I say my second question is with what we're talking about today, could like, could you, one of you, maybe both of you, um, could you explain like what exactly diagnostics are when we're talking about antimicrobial resistance? I'll start with you, Tina. Yes, certainly. Um, diagnostics are a way to, I suppose, get surveillance data for AMR infections. They're really important. You can diagnose an infection using very different tests. We've known that with um, things like COVID, when you go and get a pregnancy test, it's a similar thing. But with diagnostics for AMR, they're really, really important because they allow us to understand how many people are infected with superbugs, so AMR infections, definitely in the UK and potentially globally. So as I see diagnostics for AMR, they are a guiding strategy for uh, treatment, as well as for understanding the disease burden, as Tina very rightly said, for the surveillance. Uh, so uh, AMR diagnostics um, have not received the kind of attention for uh, many years now. Uh, which has led to uh, very irrational and uh, misuse of antimicrobials, uh, resulting in increasing levels of drug resistance. That's why there is now focus on uh, improving the diagnostic stewardship and the diagnostics which can help us in detection of the pathogens as well as the antimicrobial susceptibility profiles will be our most useful bet if we really want to uh, progress towards diagnostic stewardship. Um, Harmony said, I think it's really important because, you know, we're in a time now where antibiotics don't work particularly well. We will come to a time where they don't work at all in the future. And it's incredibly important for us to have diagnostic tests that allow us to effectively basically preserve the antibiotics we have and prescribe them appropriately. So that's one of the key things about diagnostics too. Okay. And so like with that in mind, like this when it comes to antimicrobial resistance, I'm, I like I must confess it's not something that I think about a lot in my day to day life. So, like, how how do you find the both of you? How do you talk about it to people? How do you like raise awareness of antimicrobial resistance to people who might not know it? So, I have spoken to many um, journalists in the past, and what I learned from talking to them was that many of them do not really understand antimicrobial resistance. 
they think that the humans become resistant to antibiotics. But that's not the way it is. Uh, antimicrobials are effective against bacteria. Antifungals are effective against uh, uh, fungi. And antivirals are effective against viruses. So it is when these bugs stop responding to these drugs, that is when the antimicrobial resistance develops. And uh, from um, my working in this space for almost a decade now, I understand that uh, the awareness and the risk perception on around antimicrobial resistance is very, very poor in the community, uh, even among the doctors. For me, I think I do a lot of public engagement. I talk to the public all the time. And actually, the reason I do it is I think it's it's almost like a moral obligation. I've got to do it because I know how serious the problem is. You, you see the public and they're very aware of things like climate change. And the reason they're aware of that is because um, it's been it's almost been um, explained to them in a way that they understand that there's things they can do about it. But with AMR, uh, there's it, not much that the public can do and it's it's difficult. So when I do talk to the public, I try and raise awareness of AMR and just say, well, actually, our antibiotics don't work as well anymore. Um, I organise events, definitely at Plymouth. World Antibiotic Awareness Week is incredibly important. Um, and I even create like videos for, for, for kids. Um, I just recently created an AMR video talking about how um, washing your hands is incredibly important. So... For me, it's about giving simple messages to people and the public to be able to help them feel empowered to do something at least um, and to raise awareness of the problem. So with that, Tina, like what what sort of feedback? I mean, okay, what sort of like, yeah, feedback do you get from the, I say, general public, but from people that you talk to? Like what sort of misconceptions do they have? Well, they just think that scientists can find a solution. Um, it's that, that, you know, someone will find a way of dealing with it. And actually, the problem is so complex that scientists are saying, well, we need help to deal with this. So I think the public are taking it for granted that it will just be solved, first of all. Uh, the second thing is, is that they can't really believe that there's not many antibiotics left in the pipeline. They can't believe that these um, bacteria are evolving so quickly. And I think that's part of the problem with the fact that we're not educating the public properly. We're not saying to the public, bacteria evolve. And we're overusing antibiotics. And of course, they survived before us. They were here on the planet before us. And they're going to be here after our species goes as well. And when you put it into that kind of perspective, I think people think, oh, OK, fine. I, I get this is a big problem. But why haven't we been told about it? And again, it comes back to the fact that people aren't really interested in telling the public about it, I would say. And by those people, I will point out the media. I don't think the, people, um, the media are aware of how to kind of communicate this problem. Um, because it is a problem and people don't know what to do about it in general. So we talk about governments um, and policymakers doing things. But again, it's about that whole mess of empowering people at home to do something about it. And I think that's where we are um, not meeting in the middle. And that's something that scientists and policymakers and clinicians and the public need to do better. We have not done enough to understand the socioeconomic and the behavioural drivers of antimicrobial resistance in different countries and the different socioeconomic settings. Uh, because we don't know what are the drivers, um, the what is the risk perception and why the risk perception is so low, we have not been able to come up with an appropriate communication strategies also. I mean, not much, uh, look at what we did during HIV time or for, for example, messaging around tuberculosis. HIV was a very, very complex space to be in. 
uh, there were ethical issues, there were different kinds of sensitivities, but eventually the socio-behavioral research was such a strong component of HIV AIDS research that we came up with the tangible solutions, how to convey something to the community. But the same kind of thrust, uh, unfortunately, is missing for AMR. Uh, who should you target? Should you target communities? Should you target physicians? Should you target quacks who are dispensing antibiotics? And who should be reaching out to them? So these are some of the real issues that uh, in a country like India, where, where TB cases are so high, there are different set of problems uh, which follow a set of seasonality, I would say. And then there was COVID for a long time. And uh, there are different drivers of anti, uh, antimicrobial use in our community and the way our doctors dispense drugs. So, but what we understand from uh, the surveys which we have published and one which was also done by ICMR, there is some amount of sensitization around the topic for last few years. But everyone is, uh, the avail information available is rather fuzzy and everyone is really looking for the solutions. But the fact is now almost 20, 30 years, we don't have a new antimicrobial. These are essentially analogs or combinations that we are uh, depending upon. So this kind of uh, uh, messaging is very important that just like, you know, you are worried about water, you are worried about the quality of air and climate change. Okay. I mean, so there is a lot there. And so like with today, when we're sort of looking at diagnostics, now, diagnostics, I guess, isn't really an area that a lot of people outside of experts like yourselves know about. So, Tina, starting with you, like, could you explain like, what are the different types of diagnostics? And do they all tell us the same thing or are they used for lots of different things? Okay, with diagnostics, I mean, there are different types of diagnostics and it depends on what tar they're targeting. So you can have molecular diagnostics that target almost the, the DNA inside of a bacterium and they'll give you a kind of a resistance profile and help you to understand where the resistance is in the genome. So in the DNA of that microorganism, or you can get tests that look at the serology. So looking at the way in which patients' immune system respond to um, the microorganism. And, and clinicians will know that'll be CRP tests, PCT tests. And then you can get different types of tests like antimicrobial um, susceptibility testing, which is what most um, hospital laboratories do, which is when a patient has a certain type of infection, they're not sure whether it's going to be susceptible to a certain antibiotic. They'll take that sample, take it to the lab, and then do a whole range of antibiotic testing on it to see if an antibiotic will work or won't work. All of these tests are incredibly important, but there's a whole different range of different um, timescales that can be performed in any way. So you can have a molecular test that can be performed in an hour or two hours or antibiotic susceptibility testing that takes several days, perhaps. And that's because in terms of diagnostics now, we haven't really innovated um, since the 1940s or 60s. And by that, I mean our gold standards, the, the test that everyone does for diagnosing infections is agar culture. That's your standard. That's going to tell you exactly what the microorganism is. And we haven't really developed the tech um, or tested the tech enough to be able to say, let's diagnose an infection right here, right now. That's what I'm trying to do with my research. But there's lots of problems associated with that in terms of research funding. Okay. I love how all every time we have a science, any, any expert on, the problem eventually boils down to, give us more money, please. We want more money. Oh, it's just a cliche, but it's it's not really because if you think about COVID and the amount of money that was pumped into COVID and we sold that, we developed diagnostics, we developed vaccines and that happened in a very short space of time. 
it's the same rationale, but actually, um, maybe controversially, I think the AMRs really much more of a serious problem than COVID is. And if we had the same kind of resource, we would make so much more progress. Though in terms of like pushing innovation forward, like you, uh, you work, you know, you lead an interdisciplinary team. So how do all those different experts, all those different disciplines come together to develop and make innovations in diagnostic methods and tools and stuff? I'm really proud to lead an interdisciplinary team. And the reason I do that is because not everyone's an expert on everything. So while I lead the team, I'm not an expert in biophysics, even though I touch upon it. I'm not an expert in chemistry. So I go, I look to the people in my team to provide that expertise. And a lot of scientists exist in silos. They tend to work on their own. But by bringing all of us together with different expertise to solve a problem, like this great grand challenge, I will call it, of AMR, we're actually able to do innovations or create innovations to develop potential solutions. Um, I'm not going to say that um, development of diagnostics is the solution to AMR because that's really naive and that's not the case. It's one of the many solutions um, to helping manage AMR. But for me, I think, you know, innovation cannot occur in a silo. We have to work together to solve these challenges. So how many how many different people do you have in your team? Like what? What what sort of different disciplines are we talking here? Um, so I've got people in my team who are molecular microbiologists, for sure. Um, I've got people in biophysics, people in engineering, microwave engineering, graphene, um, novel materials development. Um, I've got people in companies who give business um, development uh, information. So it's, it's taking a whole lot of different disciplines, not just scientific, but also uh, across the other humanities types of areas to come back in and understand how a product can be developed and made. So developing a diagnostic is not just about getting the science right. It's about getting the entire product right so that it's actually going to be used if it can be used. Mm. And so it's like creating something bigger and better for society in that way, bringing everyone together. And so like with that in mind, Carmen, I know that you are working on something very interesting. Uh, can you tell us about it, the Antimicrobial Surveillance Network? So I have been associated with this initiative for almost a decade now. Uh, when we started uh, putting together the surveillance network, there were many labs which were working by themselves, but then we really did not, they were all following different uh, SOPs, you could say, uh, standard uh, operating procedures, so different methodologies. So there was no way that we could collate that data and bring out a nationally representative uh, estimate of drug-resistant infections. So that's when we put together this network with 20 tertiary care hospitals, all having uh, very good labs, all having uh, the manual as well as the automated system for uh, pathogen identification and antimicrobial susceptibility testing. So the uniformity and harmonization were the key imperatives for this network. And we really focused on um, generating uh, quality assured data, which is, uh, uh, you know, kind of which can stand any, any international uh, level of scrutiny uh, and bring out the country levels, uh, trend and patterns of antibiotic resistance from these key tertiary care hospitals. And for last so many years, uh, we have been publishing the annually the report from all these uh, hospitals and this network which is uh, available in the public domain. Okay, and so what sort of information are you getting from that? Like if someone were to look at this this data, what would they see? Okay, so this data comes from the tertiary care hospitals and tertiary care hospitals are, uh, you know, the highest level of referral hospitals in our system. 
a lot of referred patients and very sick patients actually land up in these hospitals. So we uh, collect data from all the isolates which are received in the clinical microbiology labs. Uh, and, and that's uh, the data that is used to put out, uh, uh, to analyze, uh, which is analyzed and which is used to put out the uh, kind of a nationally representative. I wouldn't say that's completely representative of the country, but that's representative of the tertiary care only because the nature of the patients that uh, receive care at the tertiary care are very different from the ones that will go to the community hospitals or the secondary level hospitals. So with that in mind, like we're based here in the UK, but you know, you're working in India and we've spent a long time in this series looking at it, looking at the problem of AMR as it comes from sort of a more... British, perhaps European perspective, but when it comes to India, like what are the main challenges when it comes to AMR? Like, are there any specific issues? As I mentioned, you know, the data that we publish every year is representative more of the tertiary care. But what is happening in the community, we don't know that. Because uh, the at the community level or at the district hospitals level, uh, we don't have laboratories, we don't have skilled manpower. Uh, we don't have adequate point-of-care tests which can uh, be utilized in these uh, settings and which can give us an idea of what kind of pathogens are, uh, you know, for example, causing UTIs or sepsis and what is their drug resistance profile. So these are the challenges that we are facing in uh, uh, collating community-level data. And this is something that we really want to uh, bring out in next uh, few years, because otherwise, if you look at the ICMR data, uh, we report very high levels of resistance. That may not be an appropriate reflection of the community levels of resistance, where the use of drugs, something like apiprasilintazobactam or carbapenems, is not that high um, uh, as compared to the tertiary care hospitals. Uh, recently, uh, India came up with the National Essential Diagnostic List, and under that list, uh, we have made it mandatory that every district hospital must have a functional microbiology lab. So this uh, kind of uh, augurs very well with the overall intent of bringing out AMR data from every uh, level of healthcare. Along with that, I think uh, the government of India also has a, uh, a focused program towards creating the skilled manpower. But what is what we need very urgently is the point of care diagnostics. Tina, I see you nodding your head very much in agreement. Oh, definitely. I think I just think it's really interesting the things that Kamini pointed out because there is a huge problem with diagnostics innovation. And I think, I mean, for example, what I'm trying to do is develop a point of care test, um, utilizing engineering, you know, microwaves um, to reduce the time frame in which we can get a result. So we're looking at around about five to 10 minutes. So that's definitely a point of care without much um, processing of the sample. And we're doing that for UTIs at the moment. But the problem that I've got is that um, while I'm developing in that lab with my interdisciplinary team, um, the thing is, is that when you try and get grant funding or you talk to companies and approach them, they already want you to have developed the device uh, to the point of being uh, what we call technology transfer level four or five. So you've got this proof of concept point where you've, you've developed the technology, you've tested it, and then you know it's ready to go. And then that's when a company will take it on. But there's no mechanism to allow that proof of concept to get to a point where you can go and test it. And that's where I would say there's an almost like a valley of death. There's no way of getting those innovations out there unless there is funding and support, like, like I said before. 
And I mean, that, that's an, a really serious issue because if we don't have these diagnostic tests, then we will not be able to do the surveillance we need for AMR. And we will be um, under uh, understanding the problem globally. So in LMICs for definite, so low to middle income countries, we need to understand the incidence of AMR to be able to tackle it better uh, internationally. And we're not able to do that without diagnostics um, development. So for me, I actually think that right now, um, like with the Longitude Prize, I mean, I applied for the Longitude Prize. Um, I was a bit late. So that was what, in 2015 or 16 or 17 that was launched. Um, they gave out a seed set of funding to varying people, but they didn't give out any more funding after that. So you've got these people who are developing these diagnostic tests that are basically from companies who've got that, that money to be able to do that. Whereas, you know, academic researchers like me are kind of left out in the cold and we're trying to innovate for society, we're trying to do something a bit different because something different is required now for AMR. We're going to be in a situation, I think, um, in the next 20 years where, okay, our antibiotics won't work and we're talking about stewardship and protecting our antibiotics. But realistically, there may be no antibiotics left that work to be able to steward. And that's a different conversation entirely. So we're talking now about managing AMR, not finding solutions for it. Like learning and speaking to experts like you, throughout this series, I've just been learning that people aren't doing enough and governments aren't doing enough and everything is just, there are people like you who are, have the ability to do these things. Why aren't people giving you the money and the attention and the funding required? It's very frustrating. Oh, but back to professional Alex. Uh, <laughs> so, Sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, having mentioned, you know, all of the research and all of the work that's going into this field. I think this is a question for both of you because I'd like sort of your different viewpoints on this. What do you think that countries like the, the UK, you know, the US and generally in Europe can do to help, you know, lower middle income countries to deal with the problem of AMR? Because like you mentioned, you know, AMR is a global problem. It's not siloed to one country. It doesn't stick within borders. It's all around the world. It's global. So how can the UK and sort of other nations help uh, low middle income countries with the problem of AMR? I'm going to start with you, Carmen. So uh, one thing is very clear from the discussions today that we need good diagnostics. Those the diagnostics have to be quality products. They have to be available, accessible, and they have to be affordable. Only then we will be able to use them in a low middle income country setting like India. So where does these diagnostics come from? These diagnostics come from big pharma companies uh, and they, uh, I mean, very uh, strategically develop diagnostics for ICU's patients, uh, for something like, uh, which can be utilized in a patient who's very sick and uh, is in an ICU. That, that Those diagnostics I see, they are available in India and they are selling very fast. But it, for something like typhoid, we still don't have a good diagnostic. And we don't have a disease burden. So that's why we can't make a strong case for a typhoid vaccine. We can't make case for, you know, how much is the disease burden for typhoid in India? We have seen the successes of some of the RDTs like malaria, something like a dried blood spot assay for uh, HIV or uh, glucose strips for diabetes. I mean, we have seen how they revolutionize this space. So, there is a definite need for a good diagnostic, just like, you know, all the countries and especially India became 
uh, hub of generics for uh, making drugs, I think we need a similar focus and similar collaboration with other countries on diagnostics now. What about you, Tina? What, do you, what are your thoughts? How can the UK and other countries help? I think there's a danger in, in saying the UK can be this this saviour for other countries. I will say that, you know, there's it's almost like a bit of a colonial mindset there that we can go into LMICs and, and tell them what to do. I don't I don't think that's really the case. It has to be a collaborative um, endeavour to be able to get um, some of these diagnostic conversations off the ground, exactly what Carmine was saying. I think the, the thing that the UK is doing, which is fantastic at the moment, is we're, we've got these five-year AMR action plans and we're about to have another inquiry into the next five-year action plan in the UK. And part of that is uh, opening dialogue with LMICs and trying to um, establish and continue um, incentives such as the Fleming funds, funds that um, Kamini was talking about. But again, it's, it's creating that mechanism. It's that almost like a push incentive for people to develop diagnostics so they can be used by the communities that need them. And again, those pipelines aren't there. It's talking about those pipelines again. Um, so trying to talk about that with LMICs and, and varying countries in a collaborative way is incredibly important. But definitely, um, we've got a lot of work to do. I don't believe policymakers are particularly interested in AMR. Um, the reason I say that is because, of course, there are other things going on, the cost of living crisis and other things globally that policymakers potentially um, need to divert their attention to. But AMR is this slow, silent pandemic that is going to have a massive, massive effect on medicine. It already is. We're just not seeing it very clearly at the moment because of the lack of surveillance data. But people in the field like, like us, we know that this is happening. So for us to open dialogue is incredibly important to make sure those dialogues are kept open too and that um, people aren't working in silos. Hmm. I mean, you mentioned that you, know, you do a lot of work talking to the public and sort of educating people, making videos you know, about AMR and getting people to understand. I mean, how, how do you do the same thing for policymakers? Like, how do you get them to sit up and take notice? Well, with policymakers, um, I, I try and go to um, policy events like the Westminster Forums, definitely in the UK. I try and contribute to, to things like um, any government inquiry, like the AMR Action Plan inquiry or the bacteriophage inquiry that's going on in the UK. Um, contributing to posts, so Parliamentary Office of Science and Technology Horizon Scanning. Um, and you just try and get your message out that diagnostics is incredibly important we need to start investing in diagnostics. Um, but whether people listen is a, is a different thing entirely. And again, it's about putting yourself out there. And it's difficult to do that as an academic. I mean, I've gone to these things and said, this is what I do. And people just like nod their, fa- nod their heads and walk away. And it's, it's about perseverance. So I'm really, I'm really passionate about this because I think this is a really strong message that people need to, to understand. That's why I keep doing it. Um, but I think for many of the people who have tried to keep talking about AMR and get um, a door shut in their face, I think that's incredibly hard. And I can see why a lot, a lot has not been done. And I'll give you a really nice example. I'm not speaking for this person at all, but uh, you know, look at Lord Jim O'Neill. Um, he wrote the AMR report in 2015, 2016, uh, indicated that diagnostics was the issue, that the, the solution, sorry, um, to, to AMR, one of the big solutions that we should start investing in. That's why the Longitude Prize was um, announced and, and made up. But since then, and Lord Jim O'Neill has said this on many occasions, there's been no progress. And that's because of policymakers. That's because of NGOs. That's because of world governments not taking this seriously. So the question is, is we have to 
try and get these people to understand. But how do we do that when they're not interested? Um, and the only thing I can say is perseverance. Evidence generation, I think, is a very important part of that. Uh, once we, uh, you know, keep on generating evidence and uh, uh, bring it bring it out to the uh, knowledge of public as well as the policymakers, and one of the most important uh, uh, aspect is the economic uh, impact of AMR. I think and the uh, advantages of uh, and the cost effectiveness of having a good diagnostics in terms of the impact on. Um, you know, the, uh, the expense on uh, the antimicrobials uh, for treatment. So those are some of the things that we have been doing in India uh, to bring it to the notice of policymakers. It's not that they have started noticing as yet, but when they will decide to notice, we will have some data out there. For example, it takes 40% more, uh, you know, it is 40% more expensive to treat a drug-resistant infection than the drug-sensitive infection. Uh, when a, uh, you know, a strip of antibiotic costs only $2 and your test costs something like $10, who's going to use uh, a diagnostic test? But then the long-term advantages of using diagnostics has to be brought out through systematic studies and uh, its impact on uh, the antimicrobial use as well as the antimicrobial trend. So this is a kind of a long game that I think we, are, we all are in now. And we have to continue to do our bit. I mean, you mentioned there that that real difference in economic costs. You know, if the drugs cost you know two dollars and the diagnostics cost you know ten, these are sort of those figures there. You know, it makes more sense to do the cheaper option. Then, for you, what what would a perfect diagnostic look like that could help alleviate some of these issues and perhaps change how society views these things and how policymakers view these things? For me, a perfect diagnostic, as I mentioned, is accessible, available, affordable, and it is of a good quality. It should be available at all levels of healthcare. Um, something that uh, you know, uh, government is promoting for free. Something like COVID tests, which were made available in the shortest possible time frame. Then something that has a very short turnaround time, maybe two to four hours, is something. I would be realistic. I wouldn't say half an hour. I wouldn't say one hour. Maybe two to four hours is a turnaround time. Uh, and, you know, something that uh, has a good shelf life. Oh, I like that. I like your wish list. It's a good solid wish list. There's a wide variety of things that we can hopefully get at some point. So, Tina, like, I know that in a lot of cases, you know, in the last 20 years, like technology has been moving forward uh, and you know, we've, we've had more and more technology put into the palm of our hand with mobile phones. So are we going to see any innovation there? Like, can, can sort of mobile phone technology be helpful when it comes to diagnostics? Like, could I somehow have like a, a, a diagnostics app on my phone or could my doctor have one? Potentially, yeah. So apps are going to be very important. There are definitely apps right available right now that can help clinicians antibiotic stewardships. There's definitely a role for apps there, but there is a danger where you don't want to get patients to sort of triaging or diagnosing themselves. So there has to be managed in some way. So there's not mass panic that someone thinks they've got certain infection. Um, and it's almost like self-diagnosis with Google. We don't we don't want that to happen with, with our patients. We want some sort of um, mechanism to be able to allow this technology to be used better. 
I think in terms of technology, I mean, for me, you talk about a dream diagnostic. To me, that's a tricorder. And that's what I've always tried to develop. Um, and it sounds really, really crazy. But um, when I was young, I watched Star Trek and I thought, God, if, if I could develop a technology similar in that way, that we'd be able to detect a disease. You know, we're talking about something that's completely innovative. And we are quite far away from that at the moment. But the point is that the mobile phone technology is so small and we've got so much innovation there over the years that that technology has been available, we can translate that to diagnostics research. And that's some of the stuff that I'm trying to do right now. And for people who uh, were cool and watch Star Wars instead of ta- Star Trek, could you explain what a tricorder is? <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> um, a tricorder is a, a device used by Spock, uh, one of the characters on Star Trek, uh, to potentially, and, and Bones, of course, to potentially um, scan somebody from a distance and di- diagnose what kind of um, disease or issues that they may have with their body. And it was a, a device that's obviously, in theory, able to di- detect anything. So my final question for both of you, right? If you had one key thing for listeners to take away, be it people at home, be it policymakers, people in government, what would your one key takeaway be? I'll start with you, Tina. I think for me is to understand that AMR is just as important as climate change and that we need to do something about it and to increase AMR awareness before we lose the most precious drugs that we need. Yeah, whenever we think about antimicrobial resistance, we only think about antimicrobials. I want people to also think about diagnostics when they think of antimicrobial resistance because we will not be able to reduce uh, antimicrobial pressure, which gives uh, uh, rise to drug-resistant mutants unless we reduce that pressure. And diagnostics is a very important component of that. We need more investment in diagnostics. We need more uh, focus on diagnostics going forward. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for joining us here today. And now it's time for some news. Brought to you by Chemistry's producers met up with Dr. Hilary Jones to discuss the importance of public health advisors on television, delivering complex health issues to the public, and what antimicrobial resistance means for the future. Hello, I'm Hiran Joshi from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Joining me today is my colleague Lizzie Ratcliffe and also the fabulous Dr. Hilary Jones. Hello, here and hello, uh, Lissy. I'm very well, thank you. Can't complain. No cold scoffs, no sore throat. So far, so good. This this series is about antimicrobial resistance, but I think what we want to kickstart this interview is by asking you uh, if you can just tell the listeners a little bit about your background as a doctor, and then what made you um, decide to go into communications and television. So um, I've been a GP um, for uh, 40 years um, and and seen immense changes in general practice during that time. Um, And it was probably 10 years into general practice as as a as a GP principal that, you know, I was aware that you could see one patient at a time in the surgery, which is a very important discipline, um, just focusing on that one patient. But you could reach tens of thousands in a broadcast and spread a, um, a broadcast message to millions of people. So when there was a public health issue, and, and the most recent one being, you know, the greatest one for decades, which was the COVID-19 pandemic, 
reaching those pe- people and giving them the information that they needed um, in order to protect themselves and, and talking about changes in um, uh, vaccination schedules and the importance of um, uh, the precautions we took against COVID-19. You know, you couldn't do this on a one-to-one basis in the surgery, but, but you know, I was aware that you could do it uh, on, on television and in the media. And, and so I've been, I've been involved in the media for about 30 years um, so we've covered subjects like, you know, cancer, spotting the danger signals of a of a mole, um, uh, of a malignant melanoma, red flag symptoms of meningitis, um, and we've had a good feedback. You know, we know that through the programs we've saved lives. Um, so I think, you know, for me, working as a GP, seeing individuals, and uh, working in the media. Um, combining the two different disciplines has been very important and you know one informs the other um what the people you know on the in the media tell me they want to hear about um makes me research and then i can feed that back into the practice and vice versa so obviously your job is as a medical communicator um why is this so important particularly in the area of infectious diseases and especially in amr well it's it's what's what has been so surprising during the recent pandemic is the level of ignorance in the general population i think as scientists we assume that that the people have a a, a basic knowledge of science that they trust doctors they trust researchers and scientists but they certainly don't. Um, they, they don't appear to all the time, uh, just as they don't trust the government. Um, so they are sceptical and they question, um, you know, it, 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 back in the day, probably what the doctor said was gospel and it wasn't questioned. But now it's much more likely that people will question scientists um, and um, go down the line of um, conspiracy theories that they might see on social media. So this surprised me during the pandemic. But even before that, um, you know, there was scepticism about, you know, MMR. There was scepticism about other vaccines. Um, There was uh, sort of a lot of concern, largely inflamed by a salacious media about the side effects of antidepressants, about the side effects of um, all sorts of um, medicinal drugs, which had a, a, a really good value. So this was of concern to me, and I, I did two things. I took the jargon out of the um, communication messages um, and 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 put everything in very simple terms and explained, from my point of view, why it was so important to follow um, good guidelines uh, with medical evidence. Um, I guess a follow-up to that, because obviously that is one of the biggest challenges in terms of the public trust. How do you myth-bust a lot of the... Um conspiracy theories that might be out there and you mentioned um some of your strategies like um, removing some of the jargon trying to make things a little bit more relatable and easily accessible for for the public how do you and your producers networks work together to create specific messaging it de- it depends on the uh, particular editors of, of different programs or newspapers. Um, some will take a more um, salacious, scaremongering view. It sells newspapers. Um, other editors want to be more responsible um, and and will ask me for guidance as well. But often it's news led. So so right now we we have for some reason um, a lot of media coverage of Strap A. 
Um, and and the, if you look at the figures, you know, they're not vastly different to the figures we saw four or five years ago. Um, it's just for some reason it's hit the headlines and everyone's panicking. And I know that GPs and hospitals are inundated with worried parents. You know, every child with a sore throat now, um, there's probably 10 times as many um, demanding to seek a doctor and, and, and often putting pressure on uh, to be prescribed antibiotics when it's a simple cold. And, and the whole area of, of um, uh, uh, antimicrobial disease is fascinating. You, you, you know that the previous um, head of the um, Department of Health, um, uh, Sally Davis. Sally Davis, sorry. Yeah. I mean, she's written a book on, on the subject. Uh, and, you know, it's fascinating. But even when penicillin was being produced for the first time back in the uh, 1940s in Oxford, that they were aware that, that, that um, uh, there was um, a resistance to penicillin in, in certain organisms. Uh, so, so it's not a new thing, but, it, but because of the overuse of uh, antibiotics in the last sort of 30, 40 years, we, we now face germs which are resistant, um, which are very virulent um, and, uh, and uh, lethal. And there's still this pressure to overprescribe when it's not necessary, partly because we don't have enough diagnostic tests uh, to see what we're dealing with. You know, as I've said on television in the last few days, you can't look at a sore throat and know what, what it is that's causing that throat. Is it, is it a viral infection? Just because there's exudation, does it mean it's strep A? Um, of course, it could be glandular fever. It could be many different things, and you wouldn't necessarily want to use antibiotics in glandular fever, of course. So um, it's a challenge, and um, it's very difficult for a GP who's pushed for time, inundated with worried parents, to say, I don't think your child needs an antibiotic. Um, because to try and explain why is going to take a long time. Mm. GPs don't have that time, so it's understandable that they reach for a prescription pad um, and um, and the patient leaves the room. I was just going to ask, you were saying, obviously, we're kind of no longer in an era where people just implicitly trust what doctors say. People kind of tend to, quote unquote, do their own research and push back. Do you think that for that reason, it's particularly important now that um, people's, people have a high level of scientific literacy so that they can actually understand what the scientists and doctors are saying and understand intellectually why it's correct rather than kind of just throwing out the advice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I wish that um, there was more science uh, um, on television. Um, you know, we, we, there's probably 400 TV channels out there, a TV in every room of every home in this country, and, and a woeful lack of, of, of scientific um, education. It's all about entertainment. And, you know, I tell my TV bosses this all the time, but, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's probably less profit in, in, um, in talking science and making science sexy. I mean, we've got some very good people who, who talk about astrology and about various scientific um, issues, but they're few and far between. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to see more programmes devoted to, to science and new techniques, new, new discoveries. How, how do we motivate our young people to uh, think of a career uh, in, in chemistry or biochemistry, you know, medicine, science in the future, if everything is centred around entertainment? So I, th I think a job needs to be done there and schools maybe could look at the curriculum. I don't think it's difficult to really um, uh, influence children at a young age uh, to get them involved in science. Um, it can be made fun. 
Um, and, you know, perhaps it would take preference over certain other subjects on the curriculum that doesn't seem to have changed for decades. And that's all from us today. Join us for the next episode where I speak to a vet, an ecosystem engineer, and for some reason, a chemist on the dangerous impacts of antimicrobial resistance on our environment.